Welcome to Bethel Brandon Sunday Message. Please head over to our website, BethelBrandon.ca, to figure out how we can best serve you. Divine purpose. Did you realize that you have a divine purpose? It's true. And how you understand divine purpose and how much you believe it and how much you view it will affect the way you live your life. It'll affect your earthly goals. It'll affect your ambitions, everything about you. Now, the problem is that many people have forgotten that there is a divine purpose for them. Now, many people who don't know Jesus never really wake up to this. But the tragedy is that there are many who are sitting in our churches who never stop to consider the fact that they were created for a reason, a spiritual reason. And this is one of John, the book of John, the the gospel of John, this is one of the highlights of why he says what he says. Because he says this, if God, not just some created being, God who always was, comes in human form and dies for you, that means something. God just doesn't do things like that unless there is some type of an incentive and a belief that you are special and that there is a plan for you. And so this is kind of the the temple that we enter into as we go into the book of John. And and if you didn't get a chance, uh, and if you're watching online, you didn't get a chance, uh, I encourage you to take a look at last week's lesson as we kind of started things up. Because you will have found at that time that the book of John was probably written a generation after the first Gospels, which were kind of in, in the 50s AD, whereas John was more like 80 AD. And, and so the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which is, which is what they're called, kind of give a story to prove that Jesus was. And they wanted to record all the things that had happened and was said so that there was a recording of it to show that Jesus was the Christ. John is doing the same thing, but there was different things which are happening at the culture at that time. And so he kind of has a different, a different angle to the culture at that time where there was an attack on the church saying that Jesus really wasn't divine. Either that or they were saying he wasn't really human. And so he goes out to talk about the fact that there is something deeper. And so the gospel has maybe a different style, some different stories, some different subjects, but not a different solution. Now, it's, it's interesting that Ignatius, who is one of the church fathers in the second century, says that John is the writer of the book of John. Now, the, influ- the, the uh, incredible thing about this is that Ignatius learned everything from a fellow named Polycarp before him. And Polycarp learned everything from the Apostle John. And so you see the influence and you see the fact that this was actually the Apostle John, the one who was with Jesus, who had wrote this particular apostle. Now, another thing that is interesting to note for those people who are historians or those people who kind of uh, uh, look into some of the smaller details, that there was a vision that Ezekiel had of a cherubim many times before. I believe it it is in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 10 of this angel. And this angel has four faces. I don't know if you can remember those people who are kind of advert, uh, know things about the Old Testament. But Ezekiel has this vision of this, this cherubim and, and it has four sides and a face on each side. 
The first one is that of a lion. The next one is that of an ox. The third one is that of like an, un, an unfaced human. And the last one's of an eagle. Now, the early church fathers, as they were, they were taking a look at these things, they saw in the Gospels the very same thing. That Matthew would represent the line that he was the Messiah. That, that the lowly servant, the ox, was that of, of Mark. Luke was the son of man. And the last one, John, was the eagle, representing that he was, in fact, God. So, we learned that in the first part. Now we begin to talk about a pivotal person in Scripture. He was supposed to be the one who kind of points the way. His name is John the Baptist. And he begins to identify who Jesus is. And for us to be able to see how he identifies who Jesus is, we first need to identify who he is. And we learn a lot about John in the first three Gospels. I had read somewhere as I was studying this that John's name is mentioned in Scripture like around 89 times. I, I found that, wow, that was incredible. And, and so it, it was interesting because there are some distinct things about him. Luke tells us about his distinct birth. Remember? The angel meets with Zechariah and says, hey, there's, there's, going to be a, there's going to be a person, the child that you're going to have. He says, well, hold on a second here. I'm old. My wife's old. You know, this isn't, this isn't. and he begins to ask these questions to the point where the angel says, listen, I'm not gonna, <laughs> you're not going to talk until this baby's born, but you need to name him John, not Zacharias. And so the whole process comes up and, and the baby is born and, and all of a sudden his lips are freed and we speak. Remember the story in Luke? That was something which was crazy. And, and not only that, when Mary, who was, who was Jesus' mother, is pregnant or is, is with child and, and John is ten, six months pregnant or uh, Elizabeth is six months pregnant, it says that the, the baby leaped within, within him. This is unique life. He was what is called a Nazarene. We only kind of read of three Nazarenes in Scripture. Samson, Samuel, and now John, which basically meant when he was 14 years old, he would have taken on the role of a Nazarite. He wouldn't have been drinking any fermented drink. He was had a certain type of, of lifestyle that was very much, very much um, focused on God. He was devoted to God. And so therefore you read in scripture that he had a pretty distinct diet, very distinct wardrobe, camel hair, leather belt, Remember that? Locusts, wild honey. You think, this guy must have looked crazy. At that particular time, the people may not have seen that. There may have been a number of people who kind of looked like that. It kind of was reticent of, of sackcloth and ashes. It was representative of something. And the people of the first century would have understood that at that particular time. He had this huge personality. He kind of had this, 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 this emphasis on living a holy life. And he had this boldness that was kind of at the same time humble. And it was interesting in the fact that he had a specific role. And scripture tells us that he has this role. That he is going to point the way to Jesus. Make straight. Make the pathway straight. I'm going to come before Jesus to show him who he is. Kind of like an MC, you know what I mean? You don't come to a concert to see the MC. The MC is the one, hey, and now, boom, right? I don't know if John saw himself that way. John probably saw himself as the one who points the finger. Now, in Brandon, 
we have this bridge that is being built. How many are sick and tired of this bridge already? I know that I am because I have to go over that bridge every single day. And every once in a while as the construction gets more and more intense, they have these people on either side and they kind of wear these yellow outfits and they got a sign that says stop or go or slow or go or you know what I'm talking about. Have you met, you met these people? I think I'd like to have that job. Maybe not. But when, when construction is at a dangerous point, what they do is this. Hey, be careful. Slow down. And John would have seen himself that way. I'm the one who's going to be pointing the finger to the individual who was there. Now, Scripture goes on and talks about that he had this demise, that he ended up being beheaded by Herod Antipas because of a, a, a lustful dance that his, his stepdaughter has. And it's kind of a crazy story. You may not know this, but there are four people are four groups today that say they have the head of John the Baptist. Four. Two, are, two, of, two of John's heads are in churches. One of John's head is in a mosque, and there is another John's head in a museum somewhere. And all of them claim, now unless John was some kind of four-headed freak, someone here has got to be wrong. And he had these distinct messages. He was an individual. There was a time where, where, where Jesus is speaking and she gets this, he gets this message from John which says, hey, I just want, you know, are you the one or should I be looking for someone else? Remember that? He was a distinct individual. And so here is kind of the story. Let me read it along for you because there's a number of things here that I think are important for us to understand today. So I'm reading from John 1, verse 19. It says this, Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem and to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and, and, and did not today deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him then, Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, now those who were sent there from the, the Pharisees, and they asked him saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said, After, he come, after me comes the man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he put he, him who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again the next day, John stood with the two disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. 
The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned and seeing them following them, said, what do you seek? They said, Rabbi, which is to say in translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him for that day. Now it was about the 10th hour, 4 p.m. One of the, the two who heard Jesus speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted, wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said, follow me. Now Philip was in Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, also known as Bartholomew, folks, and said to him, we have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathan said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Wow. Quite a passage of Scripture. And there are a lot of deep things that are here that I, I would love to tell you. And there are some interesting truths that I think we take from this passage of Scripture. And so I have kind of found as I'm, as I'm going through this that I find I have to set the table before I can kind of share the truth. So if you bear with me, let me tell you some things that perhaps you didn't know about this particular passage. Is that okay? Okay. Now, it was known at that particular time, many historians have written and said that during this time, there was a heightened sense that something was going to happen. There was an anticipation that the Messiah was going to come. And this wasn't Christian historians who said this. This was secular historians who said this. Jewish historians who said this. They basically called it a messianic emotionalism. That's kind of what they called it. And so this was kind of interesting. The reason that they thought this was, Malachi was the last prophet to speak. And for Malachi until this time was 400 plus years. And during that time, Israel did not fare well. They had Babylon, and then they had the Persians, and then they had Alexander the Great. Now it's Rome. So they are under subjection to all this for 400 years. Now, if that doesn't sound familiar to you, in Egypt, they were in slavery for how long? 400 plus years. And so there is an anticipation that just as Moses has come as a deliverer, the Messiah was somehow going to come and point the way. There was something there. Plus the fact that the, the synagogue was now created and they were able to share truth and, and, and talk over and, and, and apply the written law. And so there was this, there was this, 
this anticipation. In the midst of this, there is this PK that rises up. Now, we know PK as pastor's kid, right? This was a priest's kid, Zechariah's boy, and he is causing trouble. He is talking about the fact that you need to get your life right with God. And it's kind of interesting as he begins to talk about these things in a miraculous curse. And they remember the fact that this was a guy. There was kind of a miracle that happened. Do you remember back here? Do you remember Zechariah? Do you remember the, the fact that there was this kind of miracle things that were taking place? Could it be that he is the Messiah? Could it be that he is maybe even Elijah? And so what happens is he begins to baptize people in a place which is called Bethbara. What's the significance of Bethbara? New International Version says Bethany. The New King James Version says Bethbara. Where's Bethbara? Well, Bethbara is known as the place of crossing. Where he was actually baptizing people was the exact spot that Israel crossed across the Jordan to get into the promised land. It was almost like a national baptism that had taken place. Also, the thing about this place was that it was near at least the vicinity or may have been the place where Elijah descended into heaven. And so they begin to say, there is something going on here. What is the significance of this? And his effectiveness is undeniable and he's given baptisms of repentance and he is causing a problem. Well, why is he causing a problem? I didn't, you know, you kind of think that, you know, baptisms kind of started with Christianity, but it didn't, did it? He's baptizing people, and there were two reasons that people were baptized. Either you were a non-Jewish person, and you were wanting to be Jewish. And there was a threefold process. You, first of all, were instructed by a priest, or a scribe, sorry. And if you were male, you were circumcised by a priest, and then a witness would baptize you, saying, it's time for me to live the life of a Jew. I'm abandoning all other thoughts. The other time a baptism, or sort of a baptism, happened was when the people of Israel, the Jewish people, would self-baptize themselves because they were ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, and it was a process that they would do that. Other than, other than that, there was just kind of some weird offshoots, like the Essene people. The Essene people, kind of, they, they were kind of this elitist group who kind of thought that there's something special, and so they kind of had this baptism ritual. But, but hey, no. Hey, you find out about the Essenes a little bit later, because they kind of settle in the, in the Dead Sea, and they, they're the ones who kind of kept the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're important for history, but I, let me not get into that. So what happens is, the thought is this. If you're Jewish, you don't need to be baptized. What is this guy doing baptizing Jewish people? Because that who is who he is focusing on. And so they begin to ask him, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's Elijah. Probably he's Elijah. Do you read Elijah in the Old Testament and what they say about Elijah? He was a hairy guy with a leather belt. John the Baptist, hairy guy, belt. Not only that, if you read Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, one of the last things that Malachi says is this. 
that in the end times, when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom, Elijah's going to return and turn the people's hearts back to God. And so all of a sudden, there's a guy who is standing where Elijah took off, baptizing people. It's got to be him. So what's going on here? Are you, are you the Savior? Are you, are you the person that God is calling to be the Messiah? The, the Sanhedrin, the priests and the scribes, and the Sanhedrin was a kind of group that, that kind of controlled the culture of Israel at that particular time. And one of their main jobs was to protect the nation from false messiahs. Do you get the irony there? Their, one of their jobs was to protect people from false messiahs, and they did the job so well that, that, that they protected the nation from the real messiah that time. Who are you? And what happens in verse 23 is that John says, I am not the Christ. And the emphasis on the Greek is on I. I am not the Christ. In other words, <laughs> I know who the Christ is and, and, and that, but I am not him. And so the idea about him being Elijah is not without its merits. And when, and when we go back to the story of John the Baptist's birth, the angel basically says he is going to come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And John, when he talks about him, kind of has allusions to the fact that he is Elijah. But is he Elijah? Was he lying at the time? No, he wasn't. What he was saying is that he is a type of Elijah. When Jesus comes to establish his kingdom... Elijah will come. We see that in Revelation chapter 11. But he's not coming to establish his kingdom. He is coming to die for the sins of the people. And so you kind of see a type that is happening here. I hope that I'm not losing you in the midst of all this stuff, these things that are kind of interesting and intricate for us to know. And so what happens is after he answers this, the very next day it says, Jesus shows up. And he makes this comment about this is the Messiah. He says, I baptized with water, but the guy who's going to come after me, I'm not even worthy to loose his sandals. Now, at that particular time, one of the jobs of the slave was to take the sandals of the, of the person who was the master, and they would take the sandal off. And remember, you know, you're talking about desert where it's hot and it's sweaty, and it's not just that pavement, it is dirt where camels are walking and all the stuff. And it was not an easy job. It wasn't a good job. He says, I'm not even worthy. I'm not even worthy. What he could have said is, you guys know nothing. You guys know nothing at all. I'm the greatest. At least one of the greatest. And you soon are going to find out. It doesn't say that at all. Instead, what he says is, man, I, I am not even worthy. I'm not even worthy. And so when he sees Jesus and he realizes that this is God, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and he goes in and he talks about the fact, I knew him not. Well, that's kind of strange, don't you think? Because John the Baptist did know Jesus. He was his second cousin. They sat there and they shared meals together. They shared the festivals together. Not only that, John the Apostle was actually Jesus' cousin. They both knew who he was. So why is he saying, I didn't know him? 
Well, I think that there was something so special that happened at that baptism. This was such a significant event that he knew him as his cousin. But at that point, he knew him as the savior of the world. There was something that had taken place. And that's something when your cousin says it. Because we all know that your cousin knows who you are, right? <laughs> hey, you know, my cousins would not say, hey, look, here comes the guy, no sin in his life. No, they wouldn't say that. Which kind of adds to the credibility of the whole event. And in the midst of this, we learn some important things. And the first thing I think is important for us to understand is this. That God employs unique people. Wouldn't you say? If you were to use a word to describe John the Baptist, what word would it be? Eccentric? Weird? Um, bad fashion statement? You know, all these words might be things that come into your, into your mind when you're talking about John the Baptist. Hey, um, let's say John the Baptist dated your daughter. And your daughter says, Dad or Mom, I've got a friend that I am bringing over for dinner. And so you open the door and you see your beautiful daughter there with John. And so you share a wonderful meal together, and you're civil, you know, you're kind of talking, so the, he leaves, and the door closes, and either your spouse or your daughter says, what do you think? What are the words that you use? Here's the thing. The words that Jesus said was that he was great. There's nobody greater in John than John, it says in Luke 7, verse 28. And he doesn't say that because God just looks on the outward appearance, or doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. I think the thing with John was that he was, had the ability to humbly cause people to look away from himself and on to Jesus. That he realized that it was never really ever about him. And it never really ever is about us. And very few people have that ability. It made me ask myself, am I abandoning myself well to follow God's agenda. The other thing is this. In my time as a pastor, I've had so many people who say, listen, Pastor Mike, I just, I feel like I am different than everybody else. As a minister, I have felt, based on my upbringing in that, that I just wasn't the, the, the typical pastor, that I was different, I thought different, I saw things different. And many people in here have seen themselves as different. I don't really fit in with the church crowd. It's kind of what they were saying. I think differently than them. There's certain things that I see differently. And my response to them often has been this. Good. That is a good thing because God uses different people. That your idiosyncrasies, your differences are not something to be despised, but maybe something to be celebrated. You see, God doesn't have a mold. Well, God does have a mold, and it's Jesus. And he's seeking to mold you into his image. He doesn't have a cookie cutter. You're not all going to be the same, and God doesn't want you to be the same. He created you to be different. The world and the other, and the other thing, they have a mold. 
That's why Paul says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. It doesn't stop at John the Baptist. You know, John the Apostle was unique. Simon was unique. Nathaniel, Bartholomew, they were unique people. You know, you know what they said about Bartholomew people? They said that he was sincerely blunt. You ever meet those sincerely blunt people? They're different people, folks. I'll just tell you that. And somehow, God uses flawed, tragic, unqualified people, different people. And all you have to do is open your Bible to realize that that's true. The other thing is this. He employs unique people, but he also employs unique plans and unique purposes. The whole job of John was to reveal God's purpose. And I'll tell you this. I would have imagined that the people were a little bit disappointed when John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because they didn't want a lamb. They wanted a lion. They wanted somebody who was going to take over. They wanted somebody who was going to kick the Romans out and establish things finally for the good. That was the thought. And all of a sudden, it's a lamb. Hey, a lamb is not a lion. A lamb is not ferocious like a lion. I haven't seen a sign that says, beware of lamb. Have you? And a dove descending, these are peace signs. These are sacrifice signs. Now, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not supposed to be the situation that we are going through. They had a different plan that they were exercising, that he, they were expecting. And, and before I go any further, let me ask you this question. Does that not sound familiar? Has God ever altered your plans? Has he ever detoured your plans? Has he ever delayed your plans? Has he ever kiboshed your plans? This is the way I'm supposed to go. I knew it since a kid. And somehow you are in a detour that has you scratching your head, has your journey that you are certain of have a road closed sign on it. Well, I was going to be in the Olympics. I was doing the training, and then that knee operation said you can no longer do it. What about that accident that happened? I was doing all these things. Things were going my way. Now I have this accident. I was supposed to be the CEO of that company. They chose somebody else. I was supposed to be married my whole life. God was supposed to change my spouse. And now here I stand, and I find myself alone. I was supposed to be with this person for the rest of their life, and for some reason they have gone on to something else, and I'm not too sure. And the plan that I had in my mind, I'm not too sure why God is doing what he is doing, because I knew for sure that the plan that I had was the right one, right? Ever have it when God throws an audible at you? Do you know what an audible is? Now, it is Sunday. It is like football Sunday. And in the, in the story of football or in the game of football, there is a thing which is called the audible. Now, for those of you who are, are, uh, you know, are not football fans, the audible is something which is, which is said, which is a change of the play at the line of scrimmage. You often see it. They kind of, uh, the quarterback comes up. He starts to be, oh, sorry, that's not, the, that's not the center. I go to this person here. 
And he begins to shout out things. Hey, look out over there. Hey, that guy's going to hurt me. Make sure you grab that guy. And what he does is he begins to say numbers and he begins to say colors and he begins to say all these things. Blue 32, blue 32, white 11, white 11. And you're saying, what on earth is he doing? Have you ever wondered that? Some people who aren't in it don't really understand that. What it does is many times those things mean absolutely nothing. But if a quarterback sees that the defense that he is going to, do, to be is going to ruin the play, he will call what is called an audible. All of a sudden, the key word is blue. Blue 17, blue 17. And everyone who's on the line, those who are the running backs, those who are the wide receivers, all of a sudden realize the play is being changed at the line of scrimmage. The audible. I hate the audible. <laughs> Have you ever heard an audible? Have you ever had an audible? How do you respond to the audibles, because how you respond to the audible will determine your faith. Last week, Jesus said, I came and they didn't even know me. They didn't receive me. Why didn't they receive him? Because the plan that was in their head was different than the plan that God had for them. And many times when I, when I deal with these things, I see the disappointment myself. Corey Tenboon. Many people don't know who Corey Ten Boone was, but she is a, a fantastic woman of God who lived during the Holocaust. And there's some amazing quotes that she made. One of the quotes was this. I have learned to hold all things loosely, which basically means I don't hold on to my materials because God could take them at any time. You know what I've come to find? That I have had to learn to hold all plans loosely. That if God chooses to do something else, that I have to go with it. And all times where I get disappointed with God will be the times when I've analyzed my disappointment and I've come to find out that God is not doing things the way I want him to, and that God is not doing things in the timing I want him to, and also the fact that he didn't consult me before he actually changed the plans. And folks, let me tell you, there will be seasons when we can't trust conventional wisdom and we can't trust conferred wisdom and we can't trust calculated wisdom. There will be times where we will have to trust him even though we don't understand. Even when it's not fair. Even when God remains silent through the whole process. Getting quiet in here. I better go on to the next point. God employs unique people and unique plans. He also employs unique provocation. In this passage, as it goes on and we see the choosing of the disciples, we see that Jesus many times will provoke people. He will push people. He will make life uncomfortable for them because he wants them to change. He wants them to grow. And if God doesn't provoke us, we have a tendency to settle where we are. There's that statement that says that God loves us just the way that we are, but he refuses to let us stay that way. That is true, isn't it? And he does this in a number of ways. One of the ways he does it is by asking questions. Have you wonder, ever wondered why Jesus asked so many questions when you knew he was the Son of God? He knew the answers. He knew all the answers to the questions that he asked. The very first thing that Jesus says in the book of John, the very first red letter thing that he said was a question. And it was this, what do you want? He knew what they wanted. 
Isn't that true? But it made them think a little bit deeper. It made them really ask themselves a question. The first, test, the first question in the Bible. Adam, where are you? He knew where Adam was. What was the deeper significance of that question? Who do, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? John chapter 5, he asks a guy who has been crippled his whole life, do you want to get well? What kind of question is that? Peter, do you really love me? All these things he knew. He knew all this stuff. But there's something about the questions that Jesus asks that make you think a little bit deeper. To go a little bit more towards the thought that he wants you to grow on the, on the one occasion, when they asked him that question, what do you want? He answers it by saying this, come and see. Let's go a little farther. Go a little deeper with me. The other thing that he does is he renames you. You're not Simon. You're, you're, you're not Simon. You are Cephas. You are Peter. You are Petros. You are a rock. Now, at that time, do you think he was a rock? No, he wasn't. And when Jesus names you, he doesn't name you to what you currently are, but what he sees in you, what you're going to be. And so he changes the name. He provokes Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel is such an interesting story, don't you think? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Just blunt. Now, here's the thing about Nathaniel. He, John chapter 21 tells us that Nathaniel is from Cana. You know where Cana is? Right beside Nazareth. It is like a six kilometer walk from Cana to Nazareth. Well, Cana is such this great thriving metropolis. No, it wasn't. It was almost just like Nazareth. It was kind of interesting that he makes this, this comment the way that he does. You can walk. Kemney is 14 kilometers from here. It was halfway to Kemney. That's how close it was. And it is interesting how God doesn't take offense at it. But he says, you know what? You're an honest guy. He says, how do you know me? He says, before Philip even talked to you, I saw you under the fig tree. We aren't given clarity on that. All we realize is that Jesus knew his secret spot. He knows your good secret spot. Unfortunately, he probably knows your bad secret spot as well. And in the process, he pushes them along. He says, you are God. He uses and employs unique provocation, but he also uses and he also employs unique passion. And the reason that God will push you is because he wants you to be passionate. And let me just say this as I wind things down. The term come and see in that passage is used twice. The first time it's used by Jesus to tell the, the apostles. The second time it is used by a disciple to talk to someone else. Passion comes, you know, provocation comes when Jesus says come and see. But passion comes when we begin to say Come and see. So there's something special about this. There's tons of hidden gems. 
And the last thing he says to Nathaniel is this. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Interesting comment, isn't it? That basically is from Genesis chapter 28. It's when Jacob is there and all of a sudden there is a ladder that comes down and goes up to heaven. And what Jesus is basically saying is this. I'm the ladder. I'm the ladder. And it leaves us with an important question to ask, whether you're here today or whether you're watching online. Is Jesus the ladder in your life? I ask that to you if you don't know Jesus. Is he the ladder of your life? But I also ask it to many of us who have been serving Jesus for a number of years. And somehow we have been climbing a ladder and you've come to realize that the ladder is on the wrong wall. And the challenge for us today is to allow God to use you in your unique way. And it may not be the plan that you had originally thought. But he wants you to passionately, passionately follow him. So God, I just pray that you will help us to go deeper. That maybe we have been coasting along. But today you are calling us to a deep walk with you. And so Lord, I just pray upon this congregation, every heart, every life, every scenario, every difficulty, those of us who are sitting and we are crying inside because God is trying and seeking to do something in us and, and it might not be going the right way, but God is going to use you and God is going to use your uniqueness. And if you just say, God, I will take whatever path you give me, then great things will happen. But you gotta make that choice. So Lord, I just pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit to be with each and every individual, each and every life, each and every family. Allow the anointed word to speak deeply to our hearts today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you enjoyed it, please head over to BethelBrandon.ca to listen to our older messages or maybe connect with us and figure out how we can best serve you. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.